the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of night. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our time. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Today I'd like to begin a series of studies that I call The World That Then Was. I get this title from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6 where, speaking of the great pre-flood world, the apostle writes, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. This is a study of the physical characteristics, the population, and the cultural and moral characteristics of the world before the great flood in the days of Noah. Let me open this first message of the series by reading Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Beloved, have you ever stopped to consider that one of the strangest aspects of the new earth that God will someday create is the absence of any trace of a sea? In this present earth, the great bodies of water are the most predominant geographical feature. Our present oceans cover more than 70% of the total surface of this present globe, yet the new earth will have no more sea. Water is a rather amazing substance. Without water, our planet would not be able to support life as we know it. What's more amazing still is that recent space exploration has shown our planet to be the only one in the solar system that has more than a trace of water. But on Earth, it's present in superabundance. Water is perhaps the most important compound on our present Earth. But in spite of the basic and profound importance of water on the present Earth, Holy Scripture declares that the new earth will have no more sea. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 reads, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So we have what might seem to man to be a paradox. On the first earth, as it was originally created by God, there was a universal sea. But on the new earth, there will be no more sea. In like fashion, we find from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 that the original earth was enveloped in a universal darkness. But John writes concerning the new earth in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 25, there shall be no night there. On the first creation day, God broke the power of total darkness. He divided light from darkness, day from night. And similar to this work of initial formation, 
On the third creation day, God broke the power of the universal sea by commanding dry land to appear. But in between those mighty works of God, another similar work took place on the second creation day. On that day, God divided the watchers themselves into two great reservoirs. One of these reservoirs was placed above the firmament, that is, above this gaseous blanket of our earth that we call our atmosphere. The other reservoir was left below the firmament, that is, on and under the surface of that early earth. The exact meaning of the Hebrew words used to describe this division gives reason to believe that the division of the watchers from the watchers on the second creation day was most likely into two approximately equal parts. Now, since about one half of the Earth's total allotment of water was elevated above the atmosphere, then we can assume that the lands of the first Earth occupied a great deal more surface space than the approximately 30% of those of our present world. It's reasonable to believe that at least one half of the surface of the first world was land. Most likely, the land area was considerably more than 50%. So this brings us to our first important characteristic of the pre-flood world. It had much more land area than this present earth. And this land was all land that was inhabitable to man. During this series of messages, we'll consider a description of that first world which perished in the great flood of Noah. Most of us are aware that the scripturally recorded information that we have concerning that world is relatively meager. However, the information that God has given us is adequate for us to piece together a relatively complete description of that great world. There is one direct biblical reference that we can't afford to overlook as we begin our study of the world that perished. This reference is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, a sixth day. When God completed his creation, formation, and filling of the original heavens and the earth, he inspected his work. Scripture indicates that he was delighted in what he saw and that he pronounced it very good. Our God is a God of perfection, and what he pronounces very good we can assume to be good in the absolute. That is, it was perfect. The finished creation was absolutely perfect. By his mighty creative works, God had made a perfect abode for man. It was perfect and complete in every detail. There were no thorns or thistles in that original perfect creation. These things came later, after the sin of Adam, as we're told in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 18. The earth produced abundantly everything that was needed for the comfort, wants, and pleasures of man. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9 we read, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In this perfect earth, there was no need of a struggle for existence for man or for the animals.
It's an obvious conclusion that early earth contained no deserts, no barren wastes at all. The unique greenhouse action of the immense water vapor canopy assured that there were no arctics, no tropics, no storms. We're justified in concluding that the most enchanting islands in the South Seas of our world today fall far short in helping us to visualize the conditions prevalent upon that perfect earth. Now it is true that after man sinned, God found it necessary to pronounce a curse on his perfect creation. Blight and imperfection came upon that which was previously perfect. That pre-flood earth became less than perfect as a direct result of Adam's sin. However, let me emphasize that although the curse that God pronounced became effective immediately, the consequences were not immediately apparent to the fullest extent. God had said, The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The moment that Adam disobeyed God and tasted the fruit, death came upon him. He died spiritually at that very moment. But physical death did not claim him immediately. That body in which the immortal soul of Adam was housed was created to live forever. And that body defied death for 930 years. And Adam and all his tainted offspring lived as though they would never die. And just as it was with man, apparently so it was with the rest of the creation. Although sin brought blight and imperfection upon the newly created earth, its original glory did not fade at once. After sin and death came into the world that then was, it was still vastly superior to the heaven and earth that now is. We can understand from the scriptural revelation, and the evidence in the rocks verifies it. That world was a virtual paradise compared with the world that followed our world. So let's ask the question, in what ways was that pre-flood world of Adam better than our world? Well, first, it was a world with more living space. The vast water vapor canopy provided a greenhouse effect that ensured approximately equal heating to all parts of the globe. There were no extremes of hot and cold. The entire globe enjoyed a semi-tropical, spring-like loveliness from pole to equator. There would have been no vast frozen zones such as the Arctic and the Antarctic. There were no scorched areas due to the intense heat of the equatorial zone. That earth had no storm systems because unequal heating of the earth's surface is what produces such systems in our present world. The world of Adam was watered by heavy dew, deposited each morning, and by rivers and streams fed by underground springs. Since that world was not dependent upon rain for life-giving water, then there was no dependence on rain patterns. The entire surface of the first world received abundant water. Therefore, there were no enormous desert areas, such as our present Sahara, Gobi, and so forth. All of the vast land areas of that first world was habitable by abundant plant and animal life and by man. I see that my time is gone for today.
Be with me on the next broadcast as we continue to see what the Bible teaches about the world that then was. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing with our study that I call The World That Then Was. This is a study of the physical characteristics, the population, and the cultural and moral characteristics of the world that perished in the great flood in the days of Noah. Let me open this second message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. We're considering the physical conditions that prevailed in the pre-flood world, that world which God created as a perfect abode for man. That world was far superior to this present world in which we live, and one of the ways in which it was better is that it had a great deal more living space. According to the creation account, God separated the land from the water on the third day. The record of this work is given in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Notice particularly that there is no specific mention of high mountain uplifts. But in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 4, the first feature of the new land masses uplifted by God after the great flood to be mentioned in the scriptural account were the mountains of Ararat. There's good reason to believe that the mountains of the first world were relatively low. The vast mountain and desert belts of this post-flood world have been of great hindrance to extensive settlement of it. These belts divide our continents into regions of fertile land and into regions of wastelands. Such regions would have been totally absent from the first world and therefore would not have presented a hindrance to settlement and habitation of all sections of that globe. Our present world contains vast tundras as well as the ice-covered continents of the Arctic and Antarctic regions. Also, the high mountain regions of such places as India and South America are not fit environments for human population. In our present post-flood world, about 40% of the total land areas is uninhabitable. And remember, the total land area of this present world is only a little less than 30% of the surface of the globe. But the first world had none of these barriers and hindrances of this present world. All of the land area of Adam's world was available for abundant human and animal population, and it supported ample plant life. That world had a great deal more land area than this world. Approximately one half of the water that's contained in the vast oceans of this present world was elevated above the atmosphere in the world before the flood. 
at least one half and perhaps 70% of the surface of that globe was land area in the first world. The pre-flood world had vast extenses of land area. There were no natural barriers, and most likely there was approximately equal distribution of natural resources. The pre-flood race of men throughout that vast expanse of land area could and did live in great plenty. Can we actually know whether or not the pre-flood world matched the description that I've just given? Can we know whether or not it had waste areas? Yes, I think we can know that the pre-flood world did have no uninhabitable waste areas. God has left us a record in the sedimentary rocks of this world. Fossils of plants, animals, and even man have been found in the great Sahara deserts of Africa that show that this area was at one time covered by luxuriant vegetation. It was the habitat of a great variety of animal life and that it was once inhabited by man. Similar fossil records are available in the Gobi Desert of China and also in the deserts of India. Fossils of tropical and semi-tropical vegetation are found in Antarctica and at the very fringe of the Arctic Ocean. The record in the rocks bears out the record in the scriptures. Let's recall the report of God's inspection of his new creation as it's contained in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In our present world, the unequally heated latitudes and the great mountain ranges divide the continents into clearly defined climatic and biological zones. But this was not so in the pre-flood world. The great water vapor canopy, the waters above the firmament, provided for approximately equal heating over the entire globe from pole to equator. The storm systems of our world are created by the dynamics of unequal surface heating and by the large bodies of water and the high mountain ranges. But all of these things were absent in the pre-flood world. That world had no storm systems and no winds. Although the humidity was high, the absence of weather dynamics prevented the formation of rain clouds and therefore both rain and the rainbow were unknown phenomena. Since conditions were such that humidity was near the saturation point at all times, only a slight drop in temperature was required to reach the dew point. Calculations of men who have investigated the subject show that the uniform temperature produced all over the globe was approximately 76 degrees Fahrenheit in the daytime. The temperature would drop about 2 degrees at night. The dew point was reached and a heavy dew would result each morning. And what do we read in Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. By the way, let me repeat, since rain clouds could not form, there would have been no rainbows. God's covenant of the rainbow for this world, spoken of in Genesis chapter 9, has highly significant meaning. Is it only speculation to speak of the pre-flood world as a veritable paradise?
No, it definitely is not. Although there are but meager written records, there is another kind of record that God has preserved for us. This second record is reliable. It's true, and it's written in large and legible letters in the very foundation rocks of our present world. I'm referring to the fossil record, and it's found in great abundance in every part of the globe. The fossils do not lie, even though modern man has chosen to build a falsehood upon them. The fossil record has been preserved by God for a purpose. This record is the inscription on a tombstone erected to the memory of that first world, and it's there to serve as a warning for this present world. As concerning the climate of the pre-flood world, the fossils show that it enjoyed a uniformly mild climate in what is now both high and low altitudes and all over the globe. The fossils in our rocks testify to a perfectly uniform, non-zonal, mild, and semi-tropical to tropical climate all over this planet. Now this is not to say that the climate was exactly the same everywhere. There were some very minor differences, but these differences were not extreme. Geologists concur in their acknowledgement that in all past geologic history, recent ice ages accepted, the temperatures in polar parts of the world were much warmer than those today, and the equatorial parts of the world were less warm than they are today. For example of such testimony, let me read a direct quotation from the geologist Alfred W. Wallace in his book, The Geological Distribution of Animals. Quote, there is but one climate known to the ancient fossil world as revealed by the plants and animals entombed in the rocks, and that climate was a mantle of spring-like loveliness which seems to have prevailed continuously all over the whole globe. Just how the world could have been thus warmed all over may be a matter of conjecture, but it was so warmed effectively and continuously is a matter of fact." Unquote. It is admittedly difficult for us today to imagine a world like that of Adam and his immediate descendants, but the fossil record testifies to the fact that there was neither Arctic or Antarctic and neither were there any steaming jungles of the equatorial regions. It's natural to ask, how could things have been so different in that early world, and what caused such a vast change? The only plausible explanation is the biblical account of the division of the watchers from the watchers, and the resulting protective water vapor canopy, then the collapse of this canopy at the time of the great flood in the days of Noah. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're involved in a study that I call The World That Then Was. This is the way that the Apostle Peter referred to the pre-flood world, the world that perished in the great flood of Noah. We're looking at the scriptures to determine the physical characteristics, the population, and the cultural and moral characteristics of that former world. Let's open this third message of the series by reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved 
unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We've been considering the physical features of that world that perished in the great flood at the time of Noah. The records left in the rocks and the ice of our present world testify to the fact that a great change did come upon our planet at some time in the past. A change came, and it came suddenly. As silent witnesses to this fact, we have the thousands of great woolly mammoths found frozen in the flesh in the great ice-covered tundras of Siberia. All of the geologic evidence supports the fact that the earth did undergo a great catastrophe at some time in the past. And the biblical account of the great flood describes just the type of catastrophe of which our present world presents ample supporting testimony. At the time of the great flood, the great water vapor canopy that the Bible calls the watchers above the firmament was caused to condense and to fall to the earth as torrential rainfall for a period of 40 days and 40 nights. This canopy had been provided by God for the protection and benefit of that first world. What did the water vapor canopy do for that pre-flood world? First, the sun's energy that penetrated the canopy diffused approximately equally over all zones of latitude and a mild subtropical climate prevailed everywhere. The canopy served to bring about conditions similar to a hothouse with a temperature of about 76 degrees Fahrenheit. The harmful rays of the sun, especially those most active in the aging of living things, were intercepted by the canopy. As a result, men and animals lived to great ages. Storms and rainfall were unknown in the world of Adam. Therefore, the rainbow was first seen after the day when Noah left the ark. Extremes of hot and cold, either as a function of latitude or as a function of season, were not possible. But at the time of the flood, all this changed. The canopy was caused to collapse. It was the source of rain that came from the floodgates of heaven. The immediate effect of the removal of the canopy was a radical and sharp change in the climate. Storm action began as the earth was heated unequally. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us, And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. Now the seasons became sharply divided, and there was a seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. By the way, this passage from Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22 tells us exactly when the correct principle of uniformity was inaugurated. With such favorable climatic conditions, it's easily seen that the plant life and the animal life of that first world would be vastly superior to that of this world. And so it was, as testified to by the fossil record in the rocks. With respect to the various living things, there seemed to have been fewer varieties within the kind, and there was a wider distribution of these varieties all over the world. There is a distinct deterioration of the animals and plants which now are as compared to those that then were. Let's consider one example. We've all seen pictures and read about the giant prehistoric reptiles known as dinosaurs. Their fossils have been found in every continent, 
sometimes in great numbers. Some who have studied them think that they must have been as numerous as the buffalo on our great plains a century ago. In size, the dinosaurs range from that of a small dog to well over 100 feet in length. Some lived on land, some in water, and some could fly. These creatures were reptiles, cold-blooded animals. One of the characteristics of this type of animal is that it continues to grow as long as it lives. The long lifespan, the ideal living conditions, and the abundant food supply of the first world probably explains their great size. The lizards of our present world may well be descendants of the dinosaurs, but they are impoverished because of the severe environment of our present world. Let me read an interesting passage found in the book of Job. Many believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. The story it tells dates to only a few centuries this side of the flood. These words are found in Job chapter 40, verses 15 through 18. Behold now Behemoth, which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. It's interesting to review these verses while we're considering the plant and animal life of that first world, the world that perished in the great flood of Noah. Scripture leads us to believe that the living things of the first world were far superior in size, stamina, and strength to their descendants of this world. Job seems to be describing a variety of dinosaur that still lived and walked the earth in his day. That day was on this side of the flood, even though it was during the earliest centuries of this world. Many believe that all of the great dinosaurs perished in the flood, and they've been inclined to ask, why didn't Noah take dinosaurs aboard the ark? God told him, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee. Wasn't Noah disobedient when he failed to take dinosaurs into the ark? Probably Noah did take dinosaurs into the ark. He was obedient to God, and he did take seed of every living thing of his world. Remember, God did not instruct Noah to take adult animals. The great size and the great age, I should say, of some of the dinosaurs is what accounted for their great size. The young dinosaurs were probably quite small in size, and there's nothing that would have restricted Noah from taking young dinosaurs aboard the ark. It was God who made the actual selection. Seed of the great dinosaurs were carried aboard the ark, and some survived for at least a few centuries. The question then is, why don't we have dinosaurs living today? There are several reasons for this. First, the more austere living conditions of this world did not permit many varieties to survive for our more than, at most, a few centuries. It does seem that there is scriptural evidence that great dinosaurs were present in this world just after the flood. Almost every culture found in our modern world has a dragon myth. There seems to be a great deal of similarity in the descriptions of these so-called mythical beasts, even in widely separated cultures. It's reasonable to believe that these so-called myths 
may be based on truth, and that truth is the existence of dinosaurs in the first few centuries of this world. The passage from Job chapter 40 verses 15 through 18 is the description that God gives to Job of a beast called Behemoth, a beast with which Job was evidently familiar. Although many Bible scholars have attempted to relate this description to animals that are known in our modern world, the careful reader will note that it's difficult for certain things in the description to be reconciled with any of the modern beasts selected. Behemoth does seem to relate very closely to what we call the prehistoric dinosaur. Similarly, in Job chapter 41, another beast called Leviathan is described. The entire chapter is devoted to a description of this beast, but let me read just a few selected passages. Verses 14 through 17 say, Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. Then in verses 19 and 20, Job goes on, Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go a smoke, as out of a seething pot or a cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Not only does the description resemble the prehistoric dinosaur, but it sounds amazingly like the dragon myths, doesn't it? Again, there are many who believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Certainly, there is evidence that Job lived not too many generations on this side of the flood. The book is filled with many passages that point to a vivid memory of the flood. And within this book, there is significant scriptural evidence that beasts which resembled the great dinosaurs lived in Job's day. Many of the smaller reptiles that exist today are probably descendants of the seed of the giant dinosaurs that Noah carried on the ark. The giant reptiles could not long survive in this austere post-flood world, but Job gives evidence that such animals did exist in the early centuries of this world. Once again, my time is gone. We'll continue with our study of the world that then was on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're continuing the series of messages that I call The World That Then Was. This is a study of the great pre-flood world and the creatures, both man and animal, that inhabited it. This world perished during the great flood in the days of Noah. To open this fourth message of the series, let me read Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the watchers brought forth abundantly, after their kind, and ever winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. 
We've been considering the superiority of the plant and animal life of the world before the great flood of Noah to that of our present world. On the last broadcast, we considered the giant reptiles of that first world, the great dinosaurs. However, associated with the fossil dinosaurs, there are found many other animals that are now extinct or that are found only in tropical climates. These include elephants, lions, tigers, camels, and so forth. Here are just a few specimens that have been found preserved in the sedimentary rocks of our world. Fossil birds have been unearthed that are over 10 feet high. By the way, this is two feet taller than the largest ostrich of our present world. Fossil snail shells over one foot in diameter have been found. There are fossil lobsters that are over six feet in length. Fossil frogs six to 10 feet long with heads up to 20 inches long have been uncovered. There are fossil bats that are the size of modern sheep. That which applies to fossil animals also applies to fossil plants. The first world contained giant trees, giant ferns, and giant grasses. All varieties of plants appear to have been widely distributed. A great abundance of magnificent fossil specimens of all subtropical to tropical varieties have been found all over the globe. But the great proof of the abundance of vegetation in that first world is the abundant coal beds found in every continent of our present world. There was literally a mountain of coal discovered in Antarctica by the Bird Expedition. Our coal beds were God's way of preserving those magnificent trees of that first world for the generations of today. It's been estimated that it requires 10 to 14 feet of vegetable matter to produce a seam of coal one foot in thickness. Many seams of coal exist that are 40 to 50 feet thick. In Wyoming, there's a strip mine with a seam that varies from 60 to 90 feet in thickness. Now, this doesn't mean that this vegetation grew in place. The currents of the great flood washed these tremendous masses of vegetation into great piles that were buried together. The coal seams themselves yield fossils that show this kind of floodwater action. The oil deposits that are so nearly depleted today represents the remains of the oil of the plant life and also the fatty parts of a tremendous number of pre-flood animals. Think how many millions must have died to produce the gasoline and fuel oil that we burned during the last 75 years. This resource is certainly not unlimited. By the way, the oil crisis today seems to give us some insight as to why end-time wars will be fought by soldiers on horseback. What good are today's planes, ships, and tanks without petroleum to fuel them? And what about fossil men? Are they also found in the rocks of our world? Do they exhibit characteristics of superiority over mankind of this world, similar to what we found in the plant and animal kingdoms? It may come as a surprise to some, but the answer is yes. Fossil men have been found, and they seem to have been magnificently proportioned. Examples of what anthropologists call Cro-Magnon man have been found in scattered locations all over the globe. Some of these specimens range up to 10 feet in stature. It doesn't seem reasonable 
or I should say it doesn't seem unreasonable to believe that these fossil men are samples of the pre-flood population. By the way, human footprints have been found in fossil form that measure over 15 inches in length with a stride of over 6 feet. We're reminded of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days. Now that we have brought up the subject of pre-flood men, let's consider what the Bible and the fossil record has to say about them. Specifically, what can we know about the human population figures of that first world? Can we really know anything about the population figures of that world? Was the population of the world that then was small, or was it great? Let me read Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch. And he built a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. The story of the great flood is told in chapters 6 through 9 of the book of Genesis. The story of the fall of man is told in chapter 3. Only two chapters intervene between these two records. Because of this, we tend to think of the first world as being rather short in duration. However, this is just not so. That world endured considerably longer than any kingdom or empire of this present world. The exact chronology of the first world is revealed in Genesis chapter 5. Although there is a slight disagreement between the Hebrew text, from which our English versions are translated, and the Septuagint text, the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, we find that a minimum time of 1,656 years passed between the creation and the Great Flood. 1,656 years is a long time, both in our world and in that world. Since A.D. 327 or 8, about 1,656 years ago, the world population has grown from a few hundred million to something over four billion. 1,656 years was an entirely sufficient time for the human race of the first world to expand and take possession of the earth as God had commanded in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. There's no denying that the common view is that the population of that first world, that number that died in the great flood, was relatively small. But this just doesn't follow when one logically begins to study the subject in light of the scriptural revelation. In our world, 1,656 years is sufficient time for the human race to grow to enormous populations. And keep in mind, conditions for population growth in our world are vastly inferior to those of the first world. The Bible indicates that original man had a far greater vitality of mind and body than we do. This should be obvious by just considering the great age to which he lived. The climatic conditions, the abundant food supply, the unlimited natural resources, all of these things were ideal for a rapid population growth. Now don't misunderstand me. What the exact population of the first world was at the time of the flood is, of course, a matter of conjecture. We simply can't know the exact number. However, logical reasoning and a little mathematical exercise can establish an order of magnitude. And some may find the results rather surprising.
Statisticians tell us that today the average life expectancy is approximately 73 years. Man, always ready to pat man on the back, likes to attribute this, quote, tremendous increase in life expectancy, unquote, to man's giant strides in modern medicine. But is this such a tremendous increase? Moses lived 1,400 years before Christ was born, and he wrote in the 90th Psalm, verse 10, The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years. So things really haven't changed much, have they? But be this as it may, now, during only about 30 to 35 years of this 70-year lifespan is man, or to be more specific, woman, capable of reproduction. In spite of this, families of 8, 10, 12, 14, or even more are not impossible and were common not too many years ago. Now, if modern man, with a vitality much lower than pre-flood world man, and a lifespan only a fraction as long, can reproduce in this way, don't you think that pre-flood man could do equally as well? With conditions the way they were, it would not be unreasonable to think that the population reproduced at even higher rates. Certainly the span of years over which each individual was able to reproduce was much longer. First world man lived for periods exceeding 800 years. We're told in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 15 that Mahalalel begat a son at the age of 65 years. Enoch begat Methuselah at age 65, according to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21. Noah was 500 years old when he begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is scriptural proof that pre-flood world man was capable of reproduction for a period of from 400 to 500 years of his lifespan. We're certainly justified in believing that first world families were quite large. Remember, Cain took his immediate family and was able to build an entire city. Once again, I see that my time is gone. We'll consider specific population figures for the pre-flood world as we continue with our study of the world that then was on the next broadcast. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. We're involved in a study that I call The World That Then Was. This is what the Apostle Peter called that world that perished in the great flood in the days of Noah. What were the physical characteristics of that world? How was it populated? What was the cultural, political, and moral aspects of it? These are the questions that we're trying to answer. To open this fifth message of the series, let me read Genesis chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And Methuselah lived an hundred eighty and seven years, and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech seven hundred eighty and two years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred sixty and nine years, and he died. Scripture assures us that first world man lived for extremely long periods of time. Scripture also tells us that first world man was capable of producing offspring during approximately 500 years of his long lifespan. Enoch begat Methuselah at the age of 65 years. 
Noah was 500 years old when he begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is scriptural proof that pre-flood world man was capable of producing children for at least 400 years of his long lifespan. There are several things that bring us to the conclusion that pre-flood world families were quite large. One of the better indications is the scriptural history of Cain. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 14, Cain says, Every one that findeth me shall slay me. Could we assume that he would have spoken that way if the entire population of the world had consisted of just the members of one modern family? Again, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we read that Cain went into the land of Nod and there built a city. A family consisting of only a few children would not be able to build a city. Now, based on what we have deduced from Scripture, it's certainly not unreasonable to assume that an average pre-flood world family consisted of at least 18 to 20 living and marriageable children. This is probably extremely conservative. There is an exponential equation that statisticians use to relate population growth to the average number of marriageable children per family, average length of lifespan, and average generation length. I won't read this equation over the air, but several years ago I had occasion to program it into a Sigma 5 digital computer. I did this so that I could make some reasonable estimates of the population of the first world at the time of the flood. The results are quite surprising. According to the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, there were ten generations between the creation of Adam and the flood of Noah. The total time lapse during this period was 1,656 years. If we assume that each pre-flood family produced 20 children that lived to adulthood and produced children of their own, a figure that is probably quite conservative, and if we assume that the average generation, that is the time from birth until that individual produced his 20 children, was 166 years, and the average lifespan of an individual was five generations, or 830 years, then the computer tells me that there were 2,222,199,040 people living at the time of the Great Flood. Now, these assumptions are probably quite realistic, considering what the Bible tells us about the pre-flood world. And it turns out that it's about the most conservative estimate that we can make. If we assume shorter lifespans, and along with this, fewer children, the population number actually increases, because this leads to more generations during the 1,656-year time period. One computer run assumed that 15 generations live between creation and the flood, and even though only 10 children per family were assumed, the total population at the time of the flood was over 15 billion. Whether we've ever considered this point or not, it seems that we have to assume that the population of the first world was at least as great as the population of the world today. It begins to be apparent that pre-flood man did carry out one particular command of God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God told man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In this, pre-flood man was obedient. The scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1 that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And soon the earth was filled, but also 
was filled with violence. If my computer numbers approached the true first world population, then it would be reasonable to assume that man had scattered far beyond the immediate vicinity of the Garden of Eden. Man had actually taken possession of the whole face of the earth. This is why God found it necessary to destroy all living things on the face of the earth. This was done because of the wickedness of man. It would not have been necessary to bring judgment on the entire face of the earth if man had been confined to only a small area. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did not destroy the whole world. God punished Nineveh, but he did not destroy all of Asia. God punished the apostasy of Israel, but he did not destroy the whole Roman Empire. God brought judgment upon the wickedness of the first world, and in so doing, he destroyed a human population that numbered into the billions. This should serve as a warning to our world and the wickedness of our day. For if God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Logical reasoning, based on scriptural evidence, shows that the population of that first world that died in the great flood of Noah numbered in the billions. Again, we can reasonably assume that the population of that world was at least as great as the population of the world today. It could easily have been larger. Now, this brings us to a question that may be bothering some of you who are listening today. Sometimes I'm asked, why, if the population of the first world was so large, don't we find more fossil men? Actually, quite a few have been found. Fossil specimens that are classified by anthropologists as Cro-Magnon, which they consider as an early specimen of modern man, have been found in fairly great numbers all over the world. These fossil finds don't get a great deal of publicity for two reasons. First, they are relatively plentiful, so finding a new specimen doesn't cause a great deal of stir among the anthropologists themselves. Secondly, since they're classified as homo sapiens, that is, modern man, there's not the degree of interest on the part of the public that's associated with what's considered to be human-like creatures that can be placed lower on the so-called evolutionary scale. Actually, specimens of fossil men that can be classified as anything but Cro-Magnon are extremely rare. For the most part, these specimens consist of such meager bone fragments that it's really hard to know for sure what they are. The race of men that anthropologists call Cro-Magnon are actually larger in size and seem to represent a race superior to modern man. Since Cro-Magnon is the only fossil man that seems to be rather plentiful, and since he seems to fit the biblical description of pre-flood man, I think it's logical to assume that Cro-Magnon is actually the preserved remains of a small part of the pre-flood world race. Now, there are several reasons why we would not expect to find a great number of fossilized pre-flood world men preserved in the rocks of our world. One of these is that man's higher intelligence and greater mobility permitted a larger part of the first world's population to avoid quick burial under conditions that were right for fossilization. In support of this, it should be pointed out that the rocks of our earth do not contain nearly as many specimens of the higher order animals as they do of the lower orders. This seems to bear out what appears obvious. The more intelligent and the more mobile the creature, the less chance of fossilization. 
But I also think that there is a much more important reason than this as to why only a relatively few pre-flood world men have been found. It is my belief that the pre-flood world's great population centers are at the bottom of this world's seas. There's very good reason for this belief. First, the pre-flood world had a great deal more land area than this world has. By necessity, a part of that first world's land areas have to be now covered by ocean waters. But there is even stronger reason than this. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment for their wicked ways, and he covered these remains from the sight of man by the Dead Sea. It's reasonable to assume that God has similarly buried the wicked remains of the population centers of the first world by this world's great seas also. I think, too, God has told us in his word that he's done this. Let me read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Now we know that throughout the history of our world, many men have been lost at sea and buried at sea. However, this is not sufficient reason for this revelation statement concerning God's great judgment. The dead that are in the sea refers to those billions who died in the great flood. Their remains are presently at the bottoms of our oceans. What a magnificent world that pre-flood world must have been. My time is gone for today. As we continue on the next broadcast, we'll consider the cultural and moral conditions of that great pre-flood world civilization and the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished.